Well, thank you, Sue, for reading. Uh, <clears throat> this chapter obviously starts out with generations, and uh, that just brought this picture to my mind, if we can put this up. <clears throat> now, very seldom am I called cute, but in this picture, I'm the little fella in the, in the front there. Uh, <clears throat> so it's been a long time since I've been cute, but there I was. And that was my father in the middle, my grandfather on the left, and the, my great-grandfather, whom I don't really recall except in this picture, uh, on the right. Four generations of bakers. It was uh, John Baker, Jess Baker Sr., Jess Baker Jr., and then Jerry, Bruce, and Bradley Jess down below. I thought it was just kind of a good, good picture, kind of get a sense of generations. Now, <clears throat> we have now two generations behind us. So with those four generations and two more, there's six generations that I've been, I've been a part of already. I have a picture of my mom when she was about this big, and she was part of five generations just in that picture. I think it's just kind of nice to think of the generations that God has given in our nuclear families as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have put us in families. Father, last week we read how you put the solitary in families. We thank you for this church family, Lord, that you've made for us here. And Father, we thank you for the blessings of generations of families. <clears throat> Father, may your word be preached truly today through me in the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditations of all our hearts. Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. You are our Redeemer and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> well, this chapter was, is known as the oldest of all the Psalms. Uh, Moses wrote it. He's the author of it. And you know, as I read this psalm, I like to think of it kind of a, a prayer. Yes, a prayer, but maybe we use the word prayer kind of in a, you know, a, a, a church kind of focus. It's, um, is that me? I don't know. I'm going to move this thing down closer to everybody else, and I won't worry about this. Okay, except for online. Okay, should I see you right here? Okay. <clears throat> Is that better for here? Let's try that then. Let's just pull it down. <clears throat> Moses is having with God. It's best thought of that. It's not, it's not really, a, this is not a Pauline epistle where he's is we're kind of we're kind of listening in on a prayer that Moses is having with God, or a conversation he's having with God. And he starts by talking about God's chosen people, the Israelites. He says, "Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations." And I was thinking, well, how many generations were there? Well, I, I counted through, and I think there's between time Abraham was given the promise to the time they entered the promised land was ten generations. Now. I'm part of six already. So this is not like this is forever in time. It's a few hundred years, yes, but it's not forever in time. Uh, <clears throat> and probably this was probably spoken to at the time of the ninth generation because we know Moses did not enter the promised land. We'll talk about that later. But the specific word, he starts out with Lord, which has a sense of lordship. It's a ruler, the master, the commander. He's really recognized him that way. <clears throat> he said, Lord, You've been our dwelling place for all our generations. 
What a, what a blessing that is to even think about that. <clears throat> Moses states that their ruler, their Lord, has been their dwelling place, their refuge, their home for all those generations. And then verse 2 follows real closely behind. It says that God is their ruler. Who is their ruler? It's the God who created the mountains, who created the earth, who created the generations, who created them. Uh, and he's been caring for them. What does it mean to be a, in a dwelling place? Of, uh, he's been cared for. They've been cared for for all these generations. Now, that's a really a nice picture. I kind of think I like a picture back there. It's a nice picture. Things are good. You know, you don't see me fussing with my father or him with his father. Nothing that's there. You don't see that. Well, it's kind of like that too. Here, it's a great picture, and it's true, but underlying it are some sorrows and hard times. <clears throat> the psalm sounds so beautiful to start with. In fact, the psalm starts wonderfully. That's my definition of wonderful. It's, you know, it's sweet and things are good, and it ends in a really wonderful peace. May the favor of our Lord be upon us. But in the middle, there is sin there is death, there is judgment. We're going to walk through that. <clears throat> you know, if Abraham is generation number one, by generation number three, things were going really south. The two boys in generation number three hated each other. One fled because his brother was going to kill him, he thought. Generation four, things weren't much better. There we've got 12 brothers. These brothers can really have hard times together. 11 brothers conspired together to kill their one brother, but thinking better of it, they decided and said they would sell him. Might as well get some money out of this. Um, and so they sold their brother into slavery. There's, there's really not much harmony going here in the family. And later in that very same third generation, the famine comes on, a terrible situation. Abraham was promised to move into the promised land. That's what it's all about, right? Well, they leave the promised land. They go, they flee to Egypt where the younger brother Joseph had been sold and had miraculously risen to power and Joseph was able to feed his brothers and put them in a good place. But they left the promised land. What's going on here? They abandoned it. But Joseph still has faith. He says that when we return, I want my descendants to take my bones there. So I want to be buried permanently in the promised land. But that would be a long time coming. Well, within a couple of generations, maybe less than that, a new Egyptian pharaoh arises who doesn't care about Joseph or remember him or something, and he is frightened by the size of the Israelites, so he makes them their slaves. And for the best part of 400 years, they're slaves in a foreign land. <clears throat> what's, what's their dwelling place look like now? It's not the promised land. It's not even... The Egypt that Joseph put them in, which was the lush plains, their plot, plot <laughs> their situation today, in that day, was slavery, hard work, clear discrimination, clear injustice. That was their plight. And ultimately, their baby boys were being killed, murdered by the edict of the Egyptian pharaoh. But Moses said in our psalm, we just read, that their ruler, their God, had been their dwelling place in all generations. In this generation, was he their dwelling place? Was he their refuge? Well, that gets us to really the first point of this sermon, and that is that our dwelling place is not a location, which I think we tend to think of. It's 
the dwelling place really wasn't the promised land so much. It's not where they live. It's not tied to a building. It wasn't the tabernacle or the tent or a temple or a church. That's not it either. It's not based on our goodness for sure. Our dwelling place is based on our relationship we have with God. When he is our God and we are his people, we are his dwelling place. Where it says the spirit lives within us. We're his dwelling place. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing or what we're not doing, we're his dwelling place. The Israelites had left the promised land and they were afflicted for 400 years. And at the time this was written, they were probably wandering around in the desert. And they'd been doing that for quite a while too. Yet in all these places, the children of God's dwelling place was with God. That's a wonderful promise. Uh, And what does it mean to be a dwelling place? Well, it's God is watchful over his people. God is graciously providing for his people in all places in their situation. Again, the dwelling place is not based on what we do or who we are or where we live or our social status or our economic status, but on that reliving relationship we have with God. You know, I think there's a theme throughout the Bible that God wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. And we see it clearly here with the Israelites. When he is God, he's our God and we are his people. He is our dwelling place. He's our place of refuge. He's our home. You know, he's the eternal, all-powerful one who provides for his children, no matter what our circumstances are. That takes faith. And certainly God had protected the Israelites, I mean, in many ways, uh, <clears throat> by a series of miraculous ten plagues we know about and, and the, the miracles of getting them across the, age, uh, the Red Sea, he had provided for them. When they were being chased by the Egyptian armies, he opens the waters, they cross. And as the Egyptians come across, the waters collapse, they flood and die. You know, God had saved them. And in washing out the Egyptian army, he had secured their escape. But the picture changes. As the people, when they first get across the water and they see the Egyptians drowning, they are singing and praising God. And it's wonderful that they did. But within a few short weeks, they were complaining about this water stinks. There's not enough of it. This food is not very attractive. It's not very pleasant out here in the wilderness. They didn't like their new dwelling place, even though God was continuously providing them water from rocks, manna from heaven every day. He provided them quail for meat, and he was providing them the the, uh, cloud and the pillar of fire. He provided them his presence. And direction, they moved when the the cloud moved. He had given them in the wilderness laws and commands to follow. He had given them a tabernacle, excuse me, a tent, where his presence was clearly seen. He provided them priests to help them, and he provided them a courageous leader in Moses. In short, he, their God, was trying to make them into his people. 
He was working to make them his people. His goal was to be their God and for them to be his people. But the children of Israel, as are we, are prone to wander. And they were prone to disbelief. You know, they longed several times in that, and we'll get it clearly later, they longed to return to Egypt because there was fresh vegetables there. There were leeks and onions there. What else would you want? Spurgeon calls unbelief Satan's firstborn child. And the Israelites didn't believe God would really get them to the promised land, that he really wouldn't finally make this happen. He couldn't protect them. And they wished to return to Egypt. You know, when the report of the 12 spies came back, the 12 spies had gone to the promised land, which, by the way, probably no one in that congregation had seen. They'd been in Egypt for 400 years in their family. And they came, the 12 spies came back, and they talked about how wonderful the land was, how bountiful the production was, and how big the people were, and how 10 of them said, even with God's help, we, we won't be able to manage this. These guys are giants. And you don't know what a giant looks like until you've seen these guys. And then all of a sudden, sweeping fear flies through the camp. And they believe that God can't do it. Got a slide on this one. <clears throat> From Numbers is this sad chapter. Then all the creation, or all the congregation, lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Moses, obviously, is not the right guy. You know, in saying this, they rejected God's promise of safe passage, passage to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They thought, apparently, that returning to an enraged Pharaoh and slavery and Egyptian gods was better than trusting their creator God to take them through. They rejected God's planned dwelling place for them. And in doing so, they rejected God himself. I can't understand how the whole congregation, how everyone would be swept away by this fear. But they were. The word goes on and says, it says, all the congregation said, stone them. Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron, the four who were pleading with them to believe God and trust him for their safety into the land that God had promised. What was the congregation's perspective? Stone them, find somebody else, and let's go home. Not thinking of the consequences of going home. And as I'm reading this passage again, it just struck me that suddenly it says, the glory of God, I'm sorry, didn't say suddenly, that's my word. The glory of God appeared and interrupted everything. In the middle of this argument and fight, God's glory appears. Some bright light shines and God thunders. Quote, they did not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them. God then threatens pestilence and disinheritance. Can't get deeper than that. And he says, Moses, I'll make you the father of, the, of, my, of our children, of the, my congregation, my family. 
And Moses intercedes and says, no, Lord, please relent. And <clears throat> later on, chapter 14, it goes on. I think we have a slide for this too. I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all of the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Surely the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, yet have put me to test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to my fathers, to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithful faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. You know, this judgment <clears throat> on Israel and the Israelites, I think goes a long way to just understanding those, I call them the dark verses we see in Psalm 90, starting with verse 3. The Israelites were still early in the journey. And because of their rebellion against Moses and against God, because of their unbelief, because of their desire for the certainty that they knew of slavery in Egypt compared to the uncertainty and uns unfamiliar direction of where they wanted to go, they chose Egypt as a, and its darkness over God's gift of life. They, and what happened? They were sentenced to life, sentences, to wander about in the desert, in the heat and the cold and the wind and the dry and the lifelessness instead of God's promise of life, prosperity, and fulfillment in the land of promise. <clears throat> Moses is saying in verse 3, he's talking to God. He said, God, he said, you return man to dust, and you say, return, O children of man. What a sobering comment, but true. Moses compares our short lives, maybe they're 70 or 80 years or more, to the eternity of God. And he says, our lives are less than a night watch. He's from everlasting to everlasting, but we are like a dream. We're like grass that grows and withers, and we're like a river that is flooded quickly and the waters subside, and we're no more. We are finite. He's infinite. He's our creator and our ruler. We age. We have accidents. We get sick. We diminish. He's the same forever, powerful and sovereign. In our family, we are weekly seeing my uh, in-laws. They're in their 90s. Praise God. God's given them a long life. But they are struggling. Every day is a struggle for them to make it. They are struggling with dementia, congestive heart failure, weakness throughout their bodies, and their bodies are frail and very fragile. We see death, and it's coming. And we just heard today about Keith's mom, and we grieve with their family. Yet, we all suffer the effects of sin and the curse of it in one way. Death itself was not God's plan. 
But sin is pervasive, and the fruit of sin, the fruit of pride and evil and death, is death all around us. You know, Christ follower or not, should the Lord not return in our lifetime, we're going to die. And Moses was lamenting that. But I think he's lamenting far more than just death, the death that we're all going to experience as humans. He's lamenting the judgment of God in excluding a whole generation. We're talking about thousands of people from experiencing and enjoying the plan he had for them, the goodness he had planned for them, the miracles of leading them through the, in the promised land. He was lamenting the pain and suffering he knew this generation was going to experience. The sense of failure and vanity wandering around in a wilderness, a place of dust and dirt and cold and tents. Later, he would personally feel that same judgment as he was, he was also not going to enter the promised land because of his failure in beating the rock and not asking for God's blessings in that. His life, like the rest of the adults, save the two faithful spies, would be brought to an end outside the promised land. Verse 7 reads, <clears throat> excuse me, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Yes, Moses and that entire generation would be brought to an end. That is, they would die without reaching the promised land. I look at several translations about the word dismayed. It seemed kind of wimpy to me, um, bluntly. But many translations do it this way. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are terrified. I think, to me, that is what I would have experienced. Here I was. Here I'd be, hoping to go in the promised land. All of a sudden, no, we can't do it. I'm going back to Egypt. And I'm, then the power of God is seen, and I shudder at the light. And then I hear my sentence is death, slow death, vanity, what's happening. To be told the last decades of one's life is to be spent in the wilderness, wandering around in dry, barren, hostile desert with no hope of escape until I die. And I'd be buried in the sand without fanfare, probably without any kind of permanent stone or anything, I think that's terrifying. You know, currently our world doesn't, <clears throat> in my view, not even Christians, not even me, I mean, not the, I mean something special, but it's really hard to recognize how greatly God hates evil and disbelief and what measures he's willing to take to purify his people. God was willing to let a whole generation die to prepare his people for righteousness and faith. M Moses in verse 11 says, <clears throat> who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In Hebrews 10, the author writes, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And that was written to Christians. So what is the purpose of, what was the purpose of God's wrath and judgment upon the, that generation. And maybe more importantly for us is, what's the purpose of God in designing suffering or at least allowing suffering in our lives? Tim Keller, <clears throat> I think, provides some insight here. He defines pure anger as actually a form of love. We have that quote here. 
<clears throat> anger is love in motion to deal with a threat to someone or something we truly care about. In many cases, it can be right. Now, it's kind of grappling. What does that really mean? See if this helps you. It worked for me. Yeah, I've got two grandkids, an eight-year-old boy, and we got him a Lincoln log set. And he's out there one Christmas afternoon putting the Lincoln log set. makes a beautiful Lincoln log cabin. And we've got a <clears throat> four-year-old grandson who's known as the Mobile Destruction Zone. Uh, and he sees this house that his brother has just made, and he comes in with his wrecking ball trying to do what wrecking balls do. And his brother stands up, and what happens next? I bet you can probably imagine. Now, if his brother was smart, he would drop his brother away gently and talk to his mom and dad about this, but probably he smacks his brother, and he protects what he loved. He loved making this house. He was going to protect what he cared for. It was a threat. His four-year-old brother was the threat, and he was going to take action. There's lots of better actions he could have taken, for sure. And, and I think <clears throat> Keller's right. It can be done rightly, and God does it rightly. We often do. We protect what we love, and what we love may be wrong itself, but we protect it often wrongly. But in this case, God did it right. So you might ask, well, how is God loving his people in his anger and judgment here? Well, <clears throat> forgive me, I don't have biblical evidence for all this, so I'm speculating, but I think it's informed speculation, what you used last week. But it's my informed speculation, so it's one caliber down. But anyhow, I suggest he was protecting his people from returning to Egypt. Can you imagine what incredible abuse they would have gotten when they got back there? Pharaoh, who had lost all his property, most of his army, his son... You know, this was the same Pharaoh that had killed all the baby boys. What would happen to them? But I think more significant than just protecting the people returning, I think God was preparing future generations of people to, to, to have faith in him. To return to Egypt would have meant a return to slavery. It would have likely cemented the Jews, the Israelites' disbelief that God could really do good for them. Uh, and it would have been living in a pagan land again, a land with idols and false gods. Their children would have been raised in an environment of slavery and godlessness. I think disbelief would likely have been transmitted to the next generation in spades. I submit God saw this as an existential threat to his people. The people he cared about, the people he had chosen to be a special recipient of the, his love and grace. And his anger was his love in motion to deal with that threat. You know, Don Carson, another theologian I really admire, <clears throat> provides us a thought on the value of suffering. The 40 years of suffering the children of Israel are going to experience in the wilderness. He asks, is not some of the pain and sorrow in this life used in God's providential hand to make us homesick for heaven? To detach us from this world, to prepare us for heaven, to draw our attention to himself and away from the world of merely physical things. Worrying about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. Now, I'm confident Carson's not saying all suffering is judgment from God although certainly at times it is. But I think he is suggesting that pain and sorrow are two tools 
in God's toolbox to sanctify us if we, if we respond by seeking him in those times. I think the judgment on the Israelites was used by God to detach that generation from their focus on all those necessary things, but not the most important things, on their safety and all that sort of stuff. This is the second truth, <clears throat> our second major point. God's judgments and our sufferings are loving tools of God to lead us, us, his people, to holiness. The tools, suffering and pain, demand attention. <clears throat> and they tell us that there's something more than just this physical life. Now, his judgments, unfortunately, and his suffering doesn't necessarily lead us to holiness. <clears throat> Excuse me. But they, op <clears throat> they open to us another opportunity to change. Alistair Begg summarizes it this way. As with those who hear the word of God yet don't respond to it with faith, suffering divorce from faith and hope will actually embitter us as our hearts grow harder rather than softer toward God. In other words, suffering will make us run away from God or, I'm sorry, to God or away from him. <clears throat> I've sometimes heard it said that when we suffer, we either lean toward God or we, and that is in faith and trust, or we pull back from God in disappointment and disillusionment and anger sometimes. <clears throat> our natural inclination is to ignore or at least minimize our sins and disbelief. We can easily compare ourselves to somebody else that's worse shaped than we are, uh, and we tend to minimize the detrimental impact of our disbelief and sin on others. But the reality is, our sin and disbelief impacts others. And also the truth is, as Moses tells us in verse 8, God always sees our sins. We read in verse 8, <clears throat> God has set our iniquities before him, our secret sins in the light of his presence. There's a reality that we can only be God's people on his terms and conditions. And two of those are belief in his promises and obedience to his directions. When we walk in unbelief or indifference to his call, we're in the same place as the Israelites. We're in grave danger of death outside the eternal promised land, eternity without God. Unless we have some meager hope that maybe God doesn't really see our sin and we can really hide it, or maybe he doesn't really care because it's so small and inconsequential, <clears throat> Moses declares not only does he see them all, including the ones we've hidden in the secret recesses of our hearts, he showcases them by his light and by his scorching holiness. If we look at Psalm 90 as Moses staring at death and loss, Trying to understand this. Don Carson says, Moses thinks through its, its death's relation to life. He thinks of death's relation to God life, to sin, to God. He strives to understand what death means. Then he asks, Moses asks for wisdom to live his life in the light of that death. He would have utterly scorned the modern mood that wants to live life as if death were not waiting for us at the end. Moses wants us to number our days. That is to recognize the limit that is imposed on us. 
and to live with that limit in full view. Only in this way can we gain a heart of wisdom. In this psalm, Moses has led us into the deep darkness and recesses of sin and judgment and God's anger. But in verse 12, we begin to see him leading us out. Moses becomes more personal, and he goes from the third person to the first person. He goes to the we and the us. He has seen the darkness, but he recognizes that this is not the darkness of a cave. It's the darkness of a long tunnel. As we bump along, as we move along, we might be bumped and hurt, but there is light. And note the verbs that Moses begins to use. In the first person, he asks God to teach us. Lord, return to us. God, have pity upon us. Satisfy us. Make us glad. Let your works be shown. Lord, may your favor be upon us. God, establish the work of our hands. Note who's doing all the action. Moses is asking God to act. The psalm starts starts in a statement of God being the dwelling place for all generations. It moves darkly into sin and death and judgment. And now you sense the despair of Moses, realizing how dark it is in desperation. He calls for God's intervention to the impossible place we find ourselves. And the truth, of course, is that God, through Jesus, is the only answer to our despair, to our sin, to the darkness of our lives. And this is our last point. We need to call out to God to redeem us from our tendency to disbelieve, to redeem us from our prideful action, to redeem us from our damaged and broken relationships that we've caused, but most importantly, to redeem us to himself. And that's where Jesus comes in because Jesus is our redemption. He paid the price. He took the judgment and he's allowed us to know God again. Moses starts this litany of requests, kind of demands upon God, asking God to teach us to number our days. He doesn't say just number our days. He said, Lord, teach us. There's a sense that there's a learning process here. We don't naturally want to, that, to do that because it forces us to confront our mortality. And we prefer to ignore that. Maybe deep down assuming that it never will happen or it'll be too far out. I don't have to worry about it now. But Moses is asking God to teach us, to enable us to number our days. Damar Hab- Hamlin, who's pretty popular now, the Buffalo Bill Safety, who was hurt such, almost died in his tackle of the, Cleveland, of the Cincinnati uh, <clears throat> back, He didn't expect his life to be nearly snuffed out in a second. Could have been. But his career has probably changed significantly. In an instant, things can change. The clear reality is, though, if it's in an instant or years away, we won't live forever. With God's help, we can learn. Looking at God's word with the illumination of the Spirit, we can learn to number our days Consider the shortness of our lives, the miseries of this life, to recognize that death is certain and near. 
And the causes, and what's the cause of death? Consider the causes of death and consider the grace that we can cling to for life. Why should we number our days? For lots of reasons, but Moses summarized it this way, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. David says in Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. Wisdom by, starts by realizing that God's not like us. He's forever. He's all-powerful. He is holy. We are not. And he is our authority. As Moses started out, he's our ruler. He's the commander to whom we need submit. Those who practice fear gain, or fearing God gain good understanding. To live a life of wisdom is to fear God, keep his commandments, and freely confess our sins when we have failed to do so. In practicing righteousness and godliness, we make right use of the short, uncertain time God has given us on this earth. We prepare ourselves with God's help for eternal life ahead of us. I submit it's from a, from a financial perspective, you kind of think of it this way. It would almost be impossible to invest too much in this life knowing our, the dividends are paid forever. Whatever we invest in the kingdom will be paid off forever in heaven. The heart of wisdom is understanding that life is short It is in numbering our days and preparing for eternity. And wisdom is also in understanding that when we walk in unbelief or indifference, we are in the same place as the Israelites. We're in that grave danger of death outside the promised land of eternity with God. Now note, Moses is not praying for God to relent and remove the judgment to allow them to go in the promised land anyhow. No, he's asking for something else. I think it's far more important. He's asking God to forgive, to relent of his anger, to pity those who grievously sinned, show kindness to his people, even the people who had so frequently rejected and tested him. Even in the midst of suffering, Moses asking God to show steadfast love for God to bring again a new day, or as he talks about, a new morning with his wayward people, people like us who are prone to wander, people like us who are prone to choose God's gifts over God's relationship. Much like David in Psalm 51, Moses is pleading for God to restore his people the joy of God's salvation. Moses is praying that God will enable his people to rejoice again in God's presence, even while they're in the wilderness even while they're suffering, even while they're being disciplined. And Moses clearly knows that for salvation and restoration to happen, God must act. Now that word works for us too. Even when God's not allowed us to reach our goals, even when we know we've rejected God's call on our lives, like Moses, we can call upon God and plead for him to act. God, act. God restore. We can ask God to change our hearts, to teach us to number our days, to refresh our relationship with Him. We can seek a new morning, a new start. 
and grace to walk faithfully with God for as many years or as few years and months as he might have for us. And of course, we know that God ultimately did act. He acted in Christ, who suffered the judgment we deserved and rose victorious from the grave. In Christ, we do have a new morning. We have grace and a salvation. But may we also pray, as Moses did, that God would show his people what he's doing. I'm sorry, folks. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children, he says. Oh, that God would answer that prayer for us too. When we see his work, we can join him in that work. And then with confidence pray, God, let your favor, also translated, let your beauty be upon us and establish, make firm like the wise man's house in the middle of the flood, which was based on the rock. Make firm the work you have for our hands. Establish that work through us. May we be made in God's, may we who have been made in God's image show his beauty and may our work for him endure. That's a prayer I think we can all use. But before we finish this soon, I want to remember, return to the truth that God's our dwelling place and has been our dwelling place and will be our dwelling place in all generations. God's a dwelling, is our dwelling place if we know him. Perhaps at this point in my life, I'm more attuned to uh, generations than many of you might be. Soon I've been blessed to be grandparents and uh, see many of our, see our children raising their children up to, in the name, nurture and admonition of the Lord, and that's such a blessing. But here at Trinity, we too have a mission. We have a mission in the next generation as well. You know, I've been, <clears throat> I've been blessed to work physically with the kids often on the last couple of months at times. And just last week, I was helping to Matt one of our better teachers. He was teaching the, I call them the kindergarten age kids, the younger ones. And I can say, as a teacher or helper, you can see lots going on in there you might not be excited about. Last week, we were pulling at the tablecloths and pulling it back and forth. Sometimes they get under the chairs. Um, oh, they love to get the treats, and there's a rush. Who gets there first? And there's a little bit of pushing and shoving and all those kind of things that kids are known for. But there's also an open hearts in these kids. There's evidence that God is working in them. Last Sunday, I learned that young Ollie is a great reader. That's important, but more importantly, I was impressed on his definition of what grace was at a young age. Oh, Reagan was so kind and compassionate. We had our granddaughter there. She's shy naturally. She's shyer in this church, doesn't know anybody. She was sitting on the side, almost tears in her eyes. I was feeling terrible for granddad there. And Reagan moves her chair, comes clear around, and sits beside my, our granddaughter. What compassion that was. What compassion that was. And then I saw, I always see this in Andrew. He's an intelligent boy with great potential and hard questions sometimes. And I was touched by Wyatt Collette. You know, usually in our class with Collette, she just sits there and listens politely. But she interjected, as we're talking about sin and, and forgiveness, she said, our family's been talking about that. Was, what, the, what the Chen's have been doing is working in their daughter. Ah, praise God for the work, his work in our kids. You know, Moses ch- ch- closes this chapter asking God to show his work to his servants and his glorious power to their children. In the American standard, it says, and to their children and their children and their children talking about generations again. 
may God show his power to our kids. That's our prayer for our children's ministry. I pray that God would continue you parents and our church and others to show his glorious work in this new generation. That they may respond to God's call in their lives and become faithful Christ followers as well. Yes, would God establish the work of our hands, the work that he's shown us, and he surely has shown us that we need to work with our kids. So may he establish the work of our hands, especially that work in showing God's love and the need of salvation to the next generation and the next generation. Join me in that prayer even now. Father God, we hear that you are a dwelling place and we rejoice in that. We rejoice that you are eternal. We rejoice. The preacher had a few questions for us, and so I want to uh, give these to you. The first is, how does your finitude, 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 how does the fact that you are finite help you to seek God, and in what ways has your suffering been used to draw you to God? Good question. Secondly, in what ways have you seen God at work recently, and how has that impacted you? And lastly, what work are you doing that you wish to pray God will establish and make firm? How's God using the fact that you're finite? How has God been at work and how do you want to see God?